EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high-quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. All right, here's a question. Have you ever been diagnosed with a medical condition yourself? If you have, think for a moment about how you felt at the time you found out the diagnosis and what kind of psychological impact it had on you and your loved ones and the impact of any treatments you may have received. Now think about the possibility that that diagnosis was an overdiagnosis. An overdiagnosis. In other words, a diagnosis that would never have caused any symptoms or problems, the kind of diagnosis that can be harmful if it leads to psychological stress and unnecessary treatments. This special EM Quick Hits features our own Justin Morgenstern interviewing Eddie Lang, the academic department head and professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Cunning School of Medicine, University of Calgary, and the clinical department head for Emergency Medicine Calgary Zone, Alberta Health Services. He's also a senior researcher at Alberta Health Services. You may remember him from our latest main episodes on PE. Let's hear more about the problem of overdiagnosis in emergency medicine. Overdiagnosis. This is a concept that I think every doctor must know. Preventing overdiagnosis is what drives a lot of my philosophical approach to medicine. Overdiagnosis is one of the core reasons that we spend so much time on EM cases trying to bring you evidence-based medicine. Whether it's our Journal Jam episode on stress testing or our main episode on UTI, if you listen carefully, overdiagnosis is a key theme. But Despite its importance, we haven't spent much time talking about it directly, and I want to remedy that. So to help, I've invited Dr. Eddie Lang, a name known to everybody in Canadian emergency medicine, one of the true leaders in our field, because he just published an excellent paper on the topic. Eddie, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, Justin. That's a very kind intro. Uh, it's great to be here, and congrats to you on all the great work you've done in evidence-based medicine and helping bring a voice of clarity to the interpretation of research. Cheers. So let's dive into this. Can you start by giving us a definition of overdiagnosis and maybe briefly explain why you think this is an important topic for practicing emergency docs? That's a really well-timed question, Justin, because the definition has actually been the topic of some debate over some time. But now overdiagnosis has become, just in the last year, an official MESH term and that is actually very important for the conduct of research and systematic reviews. So the accepted definition just recently established uh, reads as follows, and it's worth probably considering all of its components, even though it's a bit on the wordy side. So overdiagnosis is the labeling of a person with a disease or abnormal condition that would have not caused the person harm if left undiscovered. That means you're creating new diagnoses, either by medicalizing normal life experiences or expanding existing diagnoses by lowering the threshold or widening criteria for what is a, a diagnosis, but without any evidence of improved outcomes by expanding those thresholds. So important to remember that individuals, in this part of the definition, derive no clinical benefit from overdiagnosis, although they will experience harm both physical, psychological, and financial toxicity. So captured in these themes are overdetection, disease mongering, uh, that's maybe patients coming to the emergency asking about things that they uh, may have seen on TV and want to know uh, if they have or not. But it also, as I mentioned, refers to over-medicalization and expanding disease thresholds. So back to your question, it, it's not on most emergency de department physicians radar, and it wasn't on mine, you know, we've been trained to make a diagnosis after establishing a wide differential. Uh, what has become a revelation to me is that overdiagnosis is kind of this insidious and rampant kind of harm that we can actually inflict in the ED sort of as a result of how we are trained. Um, it may be inevitable, but for a variety of reasons, our pursuit of and wanting to minimize risk, not miss something, arrive at a diagnosis is actually what's 
driving harm for our patients. And it comes in a number of ways. Um, it's related to the fact that in some jurisdictions, the medical legal climate, of course, is going to force you to overtest, uh, and you're, you've got that FOMO tendency, not wanting to miss something. But uh, just in the same way that we're often frustrated when a radiology report comes back with incidental findings, which the patient now needs to follow up on and creates issues down the road, uh, I think we need to also appreciate that we're part of the problem and that by sending questionable patients to the CT for abdominal imaging, uh, we are contributing to overdiagnosis. There's great work by Gilbert Welch uh, when he was at Dartmouth University. He wrote the key book on overdiagnosis called Making People Sick in the Pursuit of Health. He showed that in U.S. jurisdictions with high CT use, uh, the only difference in outcome that you see as a result of higher CT use in some states versus less in other states is more nephrectomies. So that led to a, a, a neat BMJ editorial on that research saying, more CTs, fewer kidneys, but no improved outcomes overall. Yeah, and I find that so concerning because I think what you said in there, I think this is just baked into the way that we practice in emergency medicine. Uh, we can see the outcomes that are immediately in front of our eyes, but it's really hard to see those downstream consequences. And obviously, none of us wants to hurt our patients. That's why we show up to, to, to work every day. But I'll admit, I've trained in a culture where CT was readily re available right from when I started training, and I have a really hard time changing my practice. CT's there. I, I can order it. In medicine, we have a tendency to place all of the responsibility and therefore probably all of the blame on the individual doctors when things go wrong. But in your art article, you point out that overdiagnosis is it's pretty complex with multiple causes, and you break those down into five key domains. I'm wondering if you could run through those uh, causes of overdiagnosis for us. Sure, Justin. So in the paper, we present this as layers of influence driving the problem, and the figure that we include was developed to describe overdiagnosis at large and not just what is emergency department related. So first of all, at, at the outmost level, it's really a problem to some degree of culture and society where we have a deeply held belief in prevention and early diagnosis, but the evidence does not support this. There is no cancer screening test. This might come as a surprise to your listeners, but no cancer screening test has ever demonstrated a reduction in all-cause mortality. So in some cases, and in, in many cases, cancer will reduce the risk of mortality from a specific cancer, but it will not affect all-cause mortality, suggesting that screening is causing harm and the downstream consequences are causing harm and contributing to an increase in mortality that makes it a zero-sum game uh, overall. So let's think of prostate cancer. That's often the, pro the poster child for overdiagnosis. There is no evidence for a reduction in all-cause mortality. You will not live a day longer as a result of getting a PSA. And you have only a 1 in 1,000 chance of avoiding death from prostate cancer if you get a PSA test. But the risks and the harms are significant. If you do get diagnosed with cancer, and many of these will be through screening, not through symptoms, your risk of going on to develop incontinence or erectile dysfunction or urosepsis as a result of the prostate bi biopsy are orders of magnitude greater than the benefits related to preventing prostate cancer death. So the second layer is about over-reliance on tests and looking for tests that are going to be even more and more sensitive. We consider advances in this domain, like moving to the 128-slice CT as being a progress. But in fact, by detecting things that are of questionable importance, uh, like to some degree, perhaps ultra-sensitive troponins, uh, we may actually be contributing more harm than good. The third layer, and, and we've mentioned this already, is our risk-averse medical culture and the fear that we're going to end up on the receiving end of a complaint or our case will be at M&M rounds. So we're willing to transfer the risk of radiation, the risk of overdiagnosis 
to the patient, not realizing that there are these downstream consequences, uh, whether it be discovering incidental uh, aneurysms, or as I described earlier, you discover a renal cyst that may or may not be contributing to the patient's symptoms, and you've now uh, diagnosed something which you might consider a good catch, and maybe even uh, will be perceived as the patient as a life-saving event, but may not actually be. Two more layers. The fourth is the tendency to expand disease thresholds. Uh, And, you know, we saw this a few years ago when the American Heart Association lowered its blood pressure threshold for what would be considered hypertension and would require treatment. And boom, like a switch, overnight, 25 million more Americans were now considered hypertensive, which is technically a risk factor, not actually a disease itself for stroke and heart attack. And as you can imagine, the influences, including industry influences that led to the creation of that guideline, were believed to be in attribution of that expanded threshold. Um, We also see it in ADHD. Uh, There's been an exponential rise in the number of children labeled with ADHD and the number who are taking medication. That may well be the over-medicalization of normal life experiences and not actually any increase in the incidence. Finally, Justin, it's about following the money. Whether it be the way that we pay physicians or the influence of industry uh, in marketing to patients or in guidelines, uh, there's certainly a profit motive to having more people carry a given diagnosis. And then this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. None of us want to be part of this problem, but it it sounds somewhat overwhelming. Uh, So just to quickly summarize, your five major drivers here, I think I heard pervasive financial incentives, uh, increasingly sensitive diagnostic tests that we definitely have in emergency medicine, expanding disease definitions, over-reliance on medical tests, and then that faith in early uh, detection. From my standpoint, like I, those are all really important, but when you're on shift, it seems like you just sort of get caught in the middle, and this whole overdiagnosis thing can seem a little bit maybe too theoretical. So I want to get into the nitty-gritty a little bit and talk about some clinical scenarios so people can get an idea how our tests in the emergency department and how our diagnostic labels can actually end up hurting our patients in a way that we we don't attend if we use them inappropriately. So in emergency medicine, you already mentioned it, the poster child might be PE. Uh, when I find a PE on CT scan, uh, that's supposed to be an important thing. Uh, are you going to tell me that's not always the case? Well, you know, things are changing. Uh, for one thing, um, there are certain radiology groups who are now not reporting subsegmental pulmonary embolism. Uh, there's some recent work from Kristen DeWitt's group. Currently, she's in Kingston and Queen's University, which is showing that there actually may be some value or importance to diagnosing subsegmental PE. So the jury is out. But as we move to these higher resolution CTs and 128 slices or more, we are clearly going to find more PEs. But remember, PE mortality has not changed in decades, suggesting that we are finding these tiny PEs and subjecting patients to months or longer of anticoagulation, as well as lifelong concern about recurrence and significant impact on quality of life that maybe tells us that these small PEs were better left undiagnosed, central to the definition of being overdiagnosed. And I like the PE example because I think it points a little bit towards the solution in the emergency department. You should never have a test that comes back positive and you are uh, a little bit worried or sad about that diagnosis. There's a lot of times when I see the PE read and I'm like, oh, do I really have to start this patient on anticoagulation? Uh, But it's it's impossible. I, I I don't feel comfortable enough if the CT says this patient has a PE not to treat which tells you the only way I'm going to avoid this is to not order the CT scan in the first place. Be really good about knowing the Wells rules, the PERC rules, and just not get to the point where you order the CT scan because once you've ordered the test, uh, the cat's probably out of the bag a little bit. I think it's also important to emphasize that we're talking about overdiagnosis here, and that's actually different than misdiagnosis. And I've talked a lot about misdiagnosis before. Uh, I know people on EM cases have heard me talk about uh, PE in particular. And if you take somebody who's PERC negative and you end up ordering a CT scan for for whatever reason, um, and it comes back positive, just mathematically speaking, based on sensitivities and specificities, that 
positive scan is actually a false positive 75% of the time. So mathematically, we're making a mistake there. That's misdiagnosis. But in overdiagnosis, we actually believe the scan. We believe that there's a, a PE there. And the question is, we still might be doing more harm than good, even though we made a true di diagnosis. So I think overdiagnosis and misdiagnosis are, are two different things. But actually, when you consider them together, they sort of add up to be, uh, in, in combination, bad for our, our, our patients. The next example that you give in the uh, paper is a, a really popular one right now, and that's CT angiogram for thunderclap uh, headache. I see this rising very rapidly. Can you explain why this practice might not be so great for our patients? So Justin, we just completed a study in Calgary. This was CT angiography for suspected stroke and TIA. And we showed that as many as 36% of the studies reveal incidental findings that require long-term follow-up or even intervention. So with the tendency that we're seeing, at least locally, for more use of CT angiography, both for suspected TIA and stroke, as well as for suspected subarachnoid in those individuals who are skipping the lumbar puncture, we are finding many, many more of these lesions that are not causative or even related to the presentations that brings the patient in, but will nonetheless result in years, if not decades, of follow-up burden. So don't get me wrong, these tests may be warranted, especially when clinical suspicion is high, but due to our over-reliance on testing, we may, in many instances, cause more harm than good by detecting abnormalities that the patient may have been better off not knowing about. So I think where this comes into play is in a patient who you don't really think needs the imaging test, uh, but for a variety of reasons, whether it be patient expectation or medical legal concerns, you're leaning in that direction this is the time to have the conversation with the patient, explain the potential risks and downsides, and that might actually tip the scale to not ordering the test. So we're commonly taught that knowledge is power and that knowing everything possible uh, about your quote-unquote health is important, but really I think what we've learned is that this may not actually be true and we may be doing more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. More is not always more when it comes to medical testing. Uh, the next example you give here is provocative tests in low-risk chest pain. We did cover that topic in probably excruciating detail on the Journal Jam podcast in the in the past, so we can probably uh, skip over it in this uh, segment to, to some extent. But as a quick reminder from our stress testing episode, uh, our conclusion was that it was way overused and that the false positives massively outweigh the true positives. And again, that's talking about misdiagnosis. We didn't even really get into the idea of you might find a true narrowing in the artery, but finding that might not help the patient at all. So overdiagnosis is just yet another reason that we should stop routinely ordering st stress tests in low-risk patients. That's exactly right, Justin. You know, once you've discovered coronary disease in an individual who didn't need to know about it at that time, you've fundamentally changed them. They're now a cardiac patient. They're going to have that's going to have implications on their insurability, on their future plans, on their medication profile. Uh, I mean, of course you you know, one in a thousand in there or even less will be a critical stenosis, a left main lesion. But the number of people that we are sending off to these stress tests who are getting diagnosed as coronary disease years before they needed to is something that patients should be aware of when they're following up and taking that uh, outpatient referral that they get in the emergency department. And actually, I was really surprised, but the AHA has finally caught up on this. Uh, so the newest AHA chest pain guidelines say specifically low-risk patients should not have any further testing after their negative troponins and, and ECGs. So you might want to look those up uh, if you have not seen those uh, yet. So, Eddie, I got to say, your last example caught me completely off guard, and I've thought a lot about overdiagnosis. I, I just had not considered it in this context. So can you explain to everybody why you think overdiagnosis might be an issue in anaphylaxis of all things? Sure, Justin. So the epidemiological signature of an overdiagnosis problem is when you see rising incidence, but without the concomitant increase in severity or a clear reason why only milder forms of disease are on the rise. Uh, there are a number of conditions that are increasing at an alarming rate. One example, and this has been covered in the New England Journal, is melanoma where you see skyrocketing rates, but in fact, the incidence of 
metastatic or the mortality from melanoma has not changed. What this means is that we are sending more patients for biopsies. The dermatopathologists are calling these lesions marginally abnormal and get treated as melanoma. So uh, just look out for New England Journal work by Addie Adelson, who's a uh, dermatologist in Texas, who is suggesting that we're not seeing a ultraviolet light caused epidemic of skin cancer, but we're actually seeing is a problem of overdiagnosis. And dermatopathologists who work on a fee-for-service basis are much more likely to have higher rates of melanoma, uh, especially when there are also medical legal concerns contributing to that. So in the same way, we are seeing a dramatic increase in the incidence of anaphylaxis diagnosis with a matching growth in the prescription of EpiPens. So clearly there are cases of straightforward anaphylaxis, but when we see a patient with urticaria and not uncommonly associated dyspnea that is not due to airway constriction or bronchospasm, we may have a tendency to err on the side of caution and give the patient an EpiPen when in fact they did not meet the diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis. So research suggests that these labels that we give in the emergency department are often sustained in the community and allergists don't necessarily have the best interrater reliability when seeing these patients at follow-up and will continue the EpiPen diagnoses. So my point is that there may be patients out there who are handcuffed to their EpiPens when in fact they did not meet the disease threshold for true anaphylaxis and actually had a serious and uh, an re- allergic reaction with and perhaps an anxiety component. And I, I, also, I hate to be cynical, but back to the perverse financial incentives, there are some jurisdictions where emergency billing codes for anaphylaxis are substantially different than they would be for an, an allergic reaction, and that may be driving behavior as well. And I think this is such a fascinating example because I can see it in my own practice. I do, EpiPens are expensive. So I do ask patients if they can afford it, but if they have coverage, I've always just been like, you know, what's the harm? Might as well give them an EpiPen. For one EpiPen, hundred bucks, you know, it's not a big thing, but replacing that every six months for the rest of their life and insurance and the, the medical label, I don't think I have been fully considering the potential harms of my actions uh, and the, the indication creep as you move through there. So I think that points out to me exactly how complex overdiagnosis is and all these drivers, the systems issues, the medical legal issues, the cultural issues. I, I do worry as we talk about this, uh, that this problem is so immense and so complex that it's going to put some of our day-to-day practicing emergency doctors off. It sort of seems almost unsolvable. So I, I'm hoping you have some practical solutions for us that we could institute right now in emergency medicine so we can start solving this issue tomorrow. It is a vexing problem, but I think there are some steps forward that we can take. You know, we never think really of the harms of testing. And if we do believe in these, then we should obtain a thorough consent, especially in those kind of marginal cases. So if we are inclined to send someone who is low risk chest pain for follow-up provocative testing, we should at least ensure that they sign off and are aware of the risks of discovering premature coronary disease before it needed to be. We should maybe also ensure that in the patient who may not need a CT but is going to somehow end up getting one anyways, that we um, know they underappreciate the risks of incidental findings should one come up. Uh, We should probably also look at, use research to look at what are the current rates of overdiagnosis in terms of allergy, asthma, uh, anaphylaxis in the emergency department. And, you know, I just gave a lecture to the medical students in Calgary on overdiagnosis. This is the first time they've come across this topic or the first time it's been presented in medical uh, curriculum. I think there's an opportunity to include this in residency training. And, you know, we look at our QI in terms of reducing low-yield CT, but maybe we should also know to what degree we are ordering tests that reveal uh, inadvertent or incidental findings that are going to cause ultimate harm for patients. And then we do have our choosing wisely recommendations for emergency medicine, but they don't yet specifically focus on some of the things we've just discussed today uh, related to overdiagnosis, and maybe they should. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like there's a lot of things that we need to do on all levels in the emergency department and, and on broad systemic levels. 
as I listen to that, there's some broad themes there that I think really fit with my understanding of good medicine. Uh, I, I definitely heard an education theme there. And I, I think we need all doctors to understand overdiagnosis if we're going to fix it. And the other thing I really heard there is shared decision making. You know, we really need to involve patients in these decisions, maybe make it mandatory that they're, they're involved. And I'll tell you the truth, in my experience, patients are willing to take on a much greater degree of risk than we are. If you tell them that there's a 2% chance that we might be missing an MI, they are happy to run for the doors. They don't want to stay for any more testing. But if you tell a doctor that, they're always going to order more and more and more tests. We're trying to get down to infinitesimally small levels. So shared decision-making is going to be a huge part of this, I, th I think, going forward. So Eddie, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on this you know, not-so-quick EBM quick-hit episode. My pleasure, Justin. Real thankful that you invited me on here and great to have the opportunity to speak to Overdiagnosis. And now a word from one of our sponsors, North Bay Regional Health Center ED. In a world ravaged by COVID-19, trucker convoys, climate change, rush hour traffic, and hospital politics, your only hope is to come to North Bay Regional Health Center Emergency Department and join their high-performance team. There, you'll find a remarkable level of collegiality and fantastic work environment. You'll also find an incredible work-life balance where most physicians go home to a life on the lake. Make your world the way you'd want it to be. North Bay is where you want to practice. Check out their Instagram feed at northbay.er and their website, northbayer.com. Thanks so much, Dr. Morganson and Dr. Lang. So much food for thought about the downstream effects of the tests we order and the diagnoses we make in the emergency department. Next up, we have Swami, who's going to give us some tips on using lytics in pulmonary embolism. And I'm so pleased to announce that Swami will be speaking at the Virtual EM Cases Summit February 2nd to 4th. Yes, that's the Virtual EM Cases Summit February 2nd to 4th. Please mark your calendars for another epic international educational event. Submassive and massive pulmonary embolism can be extremely difficult and challenging cases to manage. One of the things that we have to think about in this management is the use of thrombolytics to try and break up that clot to try and get our patients into a better situation. Now, all the way back in EM Quick Hits number one, I talked about a case of a massive pulmonary embolism. You can go back and check out all of the management points there, including thrombolytics. But let's just summarize that in massive pulmonary embolism, we have pretty clear information that thrombolytics are indicated. In fact, the AHA, the CHEST guidelines, as well as ASEP endorses the use of thrombolytics in patients with massive pulmonary embolism. These are patients who are hemodynamically unstable. And typically, the dose that's used here is a 20 milligram bolus followed by 80 milligrams as an infusion of Altaplace. And if you have a different thrombolytic, you're going to have to look up the specific dosing, but Altaplace is the most common one that we see around. 20 milligrams as a bolus followed by 80 milligrams as an infusion. Alternatively, you could skip the bolus and just give 100 milligrams over about two hours. If the patient is in cardiac arrest from a pulmonary embolism or suspected pulmonary embolism, the dose is different. It's 50 milligrams as a bolus. Then you want to circulate that with a couple of rounds of CPR and you can follow it with a second bolus of 50 milligrams. So slightly different dosing there. The patient with submassive pulmonary embolism is a little bit different, and we really have to risk stratify this group and understand that submassive pulmonary embolism exists on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have the patient who's got a small bump in their troponin, small bump in the BNP, maybe the right ventricle is slightly enlarged, but they look pretty good. Maybe a little tachycardia, no hypoxemia, they're not tachypnic, they're stable. And that patient is very different than the submassive PE where the blood pressure is 110, they're tachycardic to 120, they're a little tachypnic, they're a little hypoxemic. That may not qualify them as a massive pulmonary embolism because they're not in shock, but they're edging towards that. And in that group, in that sicker subset of submassive pulmonary embolism, I'm going to be more likely to reach for systemic thrombolytics. In general, for submassive PE, we should be thinking about other options. Could catheter-directed lysis be indicated? You're going to have to talk to your interventionalist. Is the patient stable enough to go for embolectomy? You've got to talk to your CT surgeon. But sometimes we don't have those resources available. Or that patient's on the end of the spectrum where you're thinking they could crash. They could become that massive pulmonary embolism at any point, And I'm not going to be able to wait for catheter-directed lytics or for embolectomy to happen. 
in that higher risk group where either they're too unstable to go away for interventional or they're just not going to be able to tolerate the weight for interventional or for embolectomy, we should be reaching for systemic lytics and we should know how to do this the right way. So we're going to want to do a little bit of a risk benefit assessment. If the patient is high risk for decompensation and low risk for bleeding, we're going to go ahead and give systemic lytics. And the dose I'm going to reach for here is 50 milligrams of Alteplase as an infusion over about an hour. And I can repeat that at the end of the hour if the patient hasn't improved. On the other end, if the patient is low risk for decompensation, high risk for bleed, then I'm going to wait for interventional because I can wait. The patient is stable enough to wait for that. And then, of course, you got everything in between. If the patient is low risk for bleed, moderate risk for decompensation, I would definitely try again to wait for interventional. But if I felt that I needed to give a systemic lytic for whatever reason, I would reach for something along the lines of 25 milligrams infused over an hour. Again, remembering that I can repeat that dose if necessary if the patient hasn't improved. The one we haven't talked about is the patient who's high risk for bleed, high risk for decompensation. A lot of risk here, but I still think you have to reach for alteplase or the thrombolytic in this case because the patient is more likely to die from that than they are from the bleed. In this case, it's unlikely I'm going to be able to wait for interventional, and I'm going to reach for that 25 milligrams of alteplase over an hour, again remembering that I could repeat that dose. Some people have quoted even going with a lower dose or a slower infusion, 25 milligrams over two hours or even up to over six hours. And the reason for that recommendation is because of that high risk for bleeding. Of course, all of this comes with a caveat of we don't have really great information or data to drive these recommendations. These are my recommendations based on my interpretation of the literature on the patients that I have seen with pulmonary embolism, which I reach for systemic lytics. But I think we have to really understand that that submassive pulmonary embolism exists on a spectrum of disease, and not all these patients are going to be the same. The more risky they are for decompensation, the more likely we should be reaching for systemic lytics. The more stable the patient is, the more we can defer that management to interventional. And I think that's really the key is where does that patient lie on that spectrum? And also what is the risk for bleeding and weighing those two things together? A very nice practical application of the mixed evidence we have for lytics and submassive PE. Thank you very much, Dr. Swaminathan. Remember that thrombolysis for massive PE has been shown quite definitively to save lives and decrease PE recurrence. The most common pitfall with massive PE is simply not giving the thrombolytic. Do not shy away from lytics in massive PE. But for submassive PE, the evidence is not so clear, and like Swami said, it's mostly because the studies include a wide spectrum of patients. Meta-analyses have pointed toward a mortality benefit of lytics in patients with submassive PE, but this is based on far from robust data. If you are going to reach for a lytic in submassive PE, do it in the sickest patients who you anticipate will evolve into a massive PE. Think of it like the indications for a definitive airway in the tox or the trauma patient. If the patient's GCS is 10 right now, they usually don't need a tube, but if it was 15 two hours ago and 12, 30 minutes ago, they're heading down the LOA tunnel and probably need a tube now. Next up, we have QI Corner with Tahara Bate. A big thanks to EM Cases' Jesse McLaren and to Lucas Chartier for their QI work that inspired this QI Corner Quick Hit series. Take it away, Dr. Bate. So you're working a shift at Janus General. It's a large community hospital, happens to be the dialysis center for a large suburban population. Six o'clock, Sunday night, Next chart you pick up is a 50-something-year-old woman on peritoneal dialysis for end-stage renal disease. She's coming in with general weakness for a week. Vital signs at triage are largely unremarkable. You know, heart rate's in the 90s, respiratory rate's 16, it's always 16, SpO2 97%, afebrile, BP seems a little low though, 88 on 55. You check the computer before you see her. She's got diabetes, multiple complications in addition to her renal failure, some CAD with a prior end STEMI, and some hypertension. When you see her, she looks relatively well. She tells you that she's been feeling weak, and she's had some progressive shortness of breath on exertion. Not enough to really limit activity, but she just doesn't feel well. On further history, most things fall off your differential. 
There's no symptoms consistent with infection, ACS, PE, or CHF. You do ask about her blood pressure, and she says it runs low with dialysis, but she can't tell you what it normally is. Overall, she's got a pretty unremarkable physical exam and blood work. She has some baseline anemia and her renal failure, but it looks stable, and normal electrolytes, negative trope. So you're pretty much left with shortness of breath NYD, but she looks really well. She already has follow-up with her nephrologist booked for a few days from now, so you discharge her home with good return to ED instructions and even make sure that those instructions are written down for her. What did you miss? This patient returned two days later with the same symptoms, but this time her BP was a little lower than it was before, now 80 on 50. On repeat assessment, one of your colleagues finds via POCUS a moderate pericardial effusion. Fortunately, there was no tamponade and she didn't even end up requiring pericardiocentesis. Her blood pressure responded to some fluids and she was admitted to medicine and ultimately discharged home with a good outcome. You missed a pericardial effusion, but why? From a clinical point of view, there are really two takeaways from this case. The first, perhaps obviously, is to always keep a pericardial effusion on your differential for unexplained dyspnea. Consider using POCUS, especially in dialysis patients who are already at risk for pericardial effusion. Two is to be wary of discharging a patient with abnormal vital signs. When this chart was reviewed, buried in the nursing notes was a set of vitals just prior to discharge, showing that this patient had persistent hypotension with a systolic in the 80s. We could leave it there and surmise that this was just a mistake or a miss on your part. But let's dig a little deeper. We often break down cases like this according to provider, patient, and system factors. In this case, you attributed the hypotension to blood pressure lability in the setting of dialysis, which is not an unthinkable conclusion given that this particular patient had a multitude of factors that could contribute to a baseline hypotension. You might also have just been more likely to miss the diagnosis in this particular patient because she was at risk for a number of other conditions given her medical history that could cause hypotension. And that brings us to the question of how we could prevent this scenario from happening. Abnormal discharge vitals are a common theme of return visits. And if we start looking for some potential systems factors here, they're remarkably easy to find. Maybe the nursing notes were not readily available to review in your very busy ED. Maybe the nephrology consults detailing this patient's normal vital signs are just not available for review through your EMR. It's asking these types of questions that help us reframe these cases as something more than just an error on the part of the provider. So at the end of the day, what are the take-home points from this case? Our two clinical takeaways are, one, consider pericardial effusion in dialysis patients with unexplained dyspnea. And really, think about it in any patient with unexplained dyspnea when the story just doesn't fit. It's as easy as a 30-second look with POCUS to reassure yourself that you're not missing a pericardial effusion. Two is to beware of discharging a patient with abnormal vitals. Consider speaking with your group about how to set things up in your ED to make those vitals easier to access, or maybe you could be alerted in some way if they're abnormal prior to discharge. You know, it's this second point that really leads to our system's takeaways from this case which is instead of relying on the provider solely to catch something like this, why not put some thought into systems fixes that could help prevent these discharges with abnormal vitals? Those solutions aren't a focus of today's segment, but there are lots of potential fixes out there if you look for them, like having baseline vitals available in the EMR or protocols that flag abnormal vitals prior to discharge. The Remember that patient you discharged conversation is going to be stressful for everyone because it has you thinking what you might have missed from a clinical point of view. But remember that these return visits can also be opportunities and they're opportunities to consider why you missed what you did, including from a systems lens, and more importantly, how it could have been prevented through quality improvement. We all make mistakes, but next time, hopefully you'll remember that a mistake is never 
just a mistake. Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. Thank you, Dr. Bate. In our last EM quick hits that Britt Long did, he covered some considerations in the recognition and workup of hemophilia. In this part two, he's going to talk about some of the key aspects of treatment of hemophilia. Management of a bleeding hemophilia patient starts with looking for any immediate life-threatening emergency. Second, controlling the bleed at the local site if possible. Third, replacing coagulation factors and then finally speaking with the hematologist. Treatment is based on clinical history, not the exam, not the labs, and not imaging. Now, if they have superficial bleeding, like a small superficial laceration, you can use localized pressure and topical thrombin products. For a deep laceration, or if you've tried some other measures and they haven't worked, you can use desmopressin, TXA, and aminocaproic acid. If you're concerned about a major or a minor bleed other than that minor laceration, you need to give factor replacement. We categorized bleeding episodes in part one as major and minor bleeds. This is important because it determines the amount of factor that we need. Major bleeds include the airway, major trauma, CNS, GI hemorrhage, bleeding in the chest or the retroperitoneum, epistaxis, and the eyes or orbits. Minor bleeds include the muscles, joints, oral mucosa, and hematuria. For major bleeds, the goal is to raise the available factor level to 100%. For minor bleeds, it's up to 50%. Patients often bring their own factor replacement with them. Use that if you can. Now, there are several different factor concentrates available. They all differ a little bit in their purification and derivation, but the dosing for all of them is going to be the same. Each unit per kilogram of factor VIII raises factor levels by 2%. So this means that for major bleeds in a hemophilia A patient, you need to give 50 units per kilogram to reach 100%. In hemophilia B, each unit per kilogram of factor IX replacement increases factor levels by 1%. So this means that you need to give 100 units per kilogram to reach 100%. If you're concerned about bleeding and you don't know the patient's baseline factor levels, then just assume the factor level is zero. If there's any doubt, give full factor replacement. Too much factor is not going to cause a hypercoagulable state. It's only going to prolong therapeutic levels of the product. Other indications for factor replacement include a fracture, a sprain or dislocation, heavy menstrual bleeding with moderate to severe anemia or volume loss, and the need for an invasive procedure or surgery. This includes arterial or central line placement and also arthrocentesis. If you need to perform an LP, pretreat the patient with factors and speak with hematology. The big concern here is causing an intraspinal or epidural hematoma, which could lead to cord compression and paralysis. What if you don't have factor replacement? Activated PCC or FIBA can be used in hemophilia A at doses of 80 to 100 units per kilogram. This can't be used in hemophilia B though. Recombinant factor 7A can be used in both hemophilia A and B even if an inhibitor is present. The dosing for this is 90 micrograms per kilogram IV. Unfortunately, cryoprecipitate and FFP are not great in repleting factor levels. One of the big problems is if the patient develops autoantibodies or inhibitors to factor replacement. This occurs in about 20% of cases of hemophilia A and about 3% of patients with hemophilia B. Inhibitors are a problem for a couple reasons. First, 
they interfere with the patient's own circulating factors, which makes the disease more severe. Second, they interfere with infused factor concentrates. This means the patient has even greater difficulty treating a bleeding episode. They have to use more expensive and less effective agents for treatment, which ends up increasing patient morbidity and mortality. It's tough to diagnose the presence of an inhibitor unless the patient already knows about it. If they don't have a known diagnosis of an inhibitor, you need to think about this in the patient with recurrent or breakthrough bleeds despite factor replacement. Now, we really can't test for this in the ED. Diagnosis includes measuring the titer of antibodies in the patient's serum. A titer level of 5 is considered high. Now, like I said, treatment for patients with an inhibitor is very challenging. If the patient presents with bleeding and they know they have an inhibitor, the safest treatment is recombinant factor 7A at 90 micrograms per kilogram for both hemophilia A and B. You can use activated PCC at 80 to 100 units per kilogram for hemophilia A, but you can't use this if they're on emesuzumab or if they have hemophilia B. What about some non-bleeding issues? Patients may present with fever, and if they have long-term vascular access, you need to think about line infection and also endocarditis. A port is usually placed if they receive factor concentrate two to three times per week. Other infections include HIV and hepatitis B and C. This isn't really a problem today with current factor replacements, but these are issues in adults with congenital hemophilia. The first recombinant factor infusion was in 1987. Treatment before this included plasma-derived factor, FFP, cryoprecipitate, and blood transfusions. All of these increased the risk of transmitting HIV and hepatitis C. Before 1985, we didn't have a screening tool to detect HIV in donated blood and plasma, and for hepatitis C, we didn't have anything until 1992. One final point for these patients in the ED when it comes to medications. Avoid the intramuscular route. Instead, use the oral, IV, or subcutaneous route. The IM route can cause an intramuscular hematoma. In summary, bleeds are divided into major and minor bleeding episodes. For major bleeds, aim for 100% factor repletion. For minor bleeds, shoot for 50%. Each unit of factor 8 repletion per kilogram increases factor levels by 2%. For factor 9, each unit per kilogram increases it by 1%. If you don't have access to factor replacement, recombinant factor 7a is going to be the best bet for both hemophilia A and B, as well as those with inhibitors. Also make sure to speak with your hematologist. Hopefully with this, you feel ready to care for your next patient with hemophilia. Before we review all the quick hits, just a quick announcement. Podcast Camp, the course on medical education podcast production that I've been running now for about five years, is coming in December. We run it online over three Thursdays, December 1st, 8th, and 15th. So if you're thinking of starting a medical podcast or you're involved in one and want to up your skills, mark your calendars for Podcast Camp in December. I personally guide you through pre-production, scripting, recording techniques, educational principles, voice editing, sound design, hosting and posting, and it culminates in the infamous Pod Wars where you get specific feedback on the podcast that you produce during the course. Tickets are limited to only 20 people and they go on sale August 31st. Check podcastcamp.org for details. That's podcastcamp, one word, dot org. Now on to the review of the quick hits. Doctors Lang and Morgenstern discuss the problems of overdiagnosis. We should be balancing our desire for a near zero miss rate with the downstream deleterious effects of overdiagnosis. Now, the key to curbing overdiagnosis seems to be twofold. First, use shared decision making so that patients understand the problems of overdiagnosis. And second, we should aim to educate medical students, residents, staff docs, and each other about the downstream effects of overdiagnosis. The more we collectively are aware of these problems, the more likely we'll be to address them. 
Next, Swami explained how, despite murky evidence for IV lytics in a wide spectrum of patients with submassive PE, we should consider lytics in those patients at the end of the submassive PE clinical spectrum that we anticipate might develop shock. That would be massive PE. The sicker the patients, say soft blood pressure, bad SATs, respiratory distress, elevated trope, worrisome POCUS findings, huge proximal clot burden on CTPA, those kinds of things, we need to think about lytics. And we need to weigh the risk of bleeding. In patients who are super high risk for bleeding, you may want to get that patient to interventional ASAP and forego the lytics. On QI Corner with Tahara Bate, we talked about a case of a dialysis patient who presented with shortness of breath and ended up having a uremic pericardial effusion as the cause for her shortness of breath. The QI take-homes were to check the nursing notes for repeat vital signs before discharge or have some system in place where repeat abnormal vitals are flagged, and to consider a quick cardiac pocus in patients with shortness of breath without an obvious cause, especially dialysis patients and cancer patients who are at high risk for pericardial effusions. And lastly, Britt Long reviewed the treatment of bleeding in patients with hemophilia, and essentially you need to think about four components of treatment. First is to assess and treat immediate life-threatening emergencies based on history and suspected site of bleeding rather than waiting for imaging and lab tests. Second is to control the bleeding at the local site if possible. Third is replacing coagulation factors. And if coagulation factors aren't available, consider PCCs, FIBA, or recombinant 7A. And lastly, call a friend. You're a local hematologist because these patients can be very complicated. Next month on EM Cases, we've got a very special episode featuring live podcasts from my visiting professor gig at University of Calgary Emergency Medicine this past spring. Dr. Lang, who was on this podcast, will be featured again, along with Mike Betzner, who you might know from the EMU conference, uh, Katie Lynn, an emergency doctor who's also on a stroke team, which is a very cool combination and a few other shining stars from Calgary EM. Until next time, take it easy.